Welcome to the Asbury First United Methodist Church Weekly Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message by Stephen Cady. For more information about this podcast or other ways to connect, please visit asburyfirst.org. Miss Jessie James was the oldest of six children growing up in Sanford, Florida, just 25 miles northeast of Orlando. She had two sisters, three brothers, and parents who had high expectations of her join the club. Every week, in addition to her schoolwork, she was every weekday, in addition to her schoolwork, she was expected to read the newspaper, read her Bible, and make sure that she saved enough time to join the rest of her family in the fields picking beans and cutting celery. On the weekends, that was virtually all they did, save for their Sunday morning prayer service. When she graduated from high school in 1952, she was engaged to a young man who let her know that as soon as they were married, she would be expected to be working in the fields all day, cutting celery. Not understanding why, she would have spent 12 years in school, only to end up back in the celery fields where she began. She promptly called off the engagement, packed up her things, and courageously began a 1,200-mile journey north from Sanford, Florida, to Rochester, New York. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called the Great Migration, that time in the early and mid-20th century in which black Americans found their way north out of the apartheid south, forever changing the complexion of our northern cities. It was quite a rout, as you can see from the mid-early 20th century, there were approximately 8% of the black population living outside of the South. By 1970, there was 47%. A big shift. Though, to be fair, in Rochester, that great migration didn't really come into being until around 1940, at least not in earnest. See, in 1940, we had about 2,700 black residents in our community, 2,700 representing just 1% of the population. Over the course of the next 50 years, that number would grow by 2,000%, adding 40,000 black Rochesterians between 1950 and 1950. 1970 alone. And while they came from all over, particularly from Mississippi and South Carolina, the greatest source of black migrants to Rochester, New York, came from the same place Jesse did, not just Florida, but Sanford, Florida. As the principal of Sanford Crooms Academy, a black school in Sanford, Florida, said, that by 1969, 30 or 40 of every graduating class left immediately for Rochester. Eugene Barrington, one of those Sanford residents who made his way north and eventually became a sociologist, earning his doctoral degree at Syracuse University, he dubbed it the Rochester Mystique. The idea that there was a city up north where the jobs were plentiful, 
The money was good, and it wasn't so darn hot. <laughs> One out of three isn't bad. Unlike some of the other migrations, the one to Rochester was not industrial. As the great industrial, the, the company that owned the most factory work and that had the most industrial process here was Eastman Kodak at the time, and they only, had, they only allowed just a few black or brown persons to work in their factories. And so the great migration to Rochester took place mostly on the outskirts of the city. That was, it was primarily agricultural. And so families would leave the celery fields down in Sanford, Florida, and make their way often in one car, sometimes with 10 people, 1,200 miles a day and a half in one car with 10 people all the way up to Rochester where they would work the fields. As one migrant worker put it, you could start in June and keep going straight through to November because the crop just kept changing. They would work from tomatoes to beans to celery. They knew something about celery. They would work with apples and pears and prunes. They would find their way. And though the conditions were absolutely abysmal, Though they rarely had a toilet indoor or outdoor, or mattresses to speak of, they still earned more than they did in the fields in Florida. And every once in a while, they got the opportunity to come into the city center, maybe to pick up supplies, or to hear some jazz, or to get their hair done. And pretty soon, those agricultural seasonal migrants stopped making the trek back down to Florida, figuring they'd try their hand here in Rochester. Which, if we're honest, is when the trouble really began. When those migrant workers became stagrant when they moved from the outskirts of the city to the center of it. The real face of Rochester was revealed. And though we are famous as the image capital of the world, what they saw was not pretty. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And if we're honest, we sort of get it, don't we? We know what it's like to be comfortable where we are, to not be looking towards the city, even a city that we love, having to understand what is happening there. We'd rather just kind of get into our routine, get into our flow, and not have to think about those other things. No, we understand Jonah. Even as a people of faith, we understand it. We know that God calls us to look into the injustices of this world. We know that God calls us to pay attention to the harm that is being done by us or others, intentionally or not, and yet we also know how easy it is to just go to sleep. 
to flee from the presence of the Lord. But where there is truth, friends, there is God. And when we turn away from the truth, we turn away from God. We cannot be faithful people if we're not willing to take a hard look, even at those places we love, even into those places that we'd rather not see. And so, in the end, we're kind of left with a choice, the same choice that Jonah had in that little parable. We can turn the other way, get on a proverbial ship and, head first and, storm, and sail headfirst into the storm, trying our best to fall asleep, pretending like we don't hear the cries before us. Or we can unshackle ourselves from the neat narratives we love to tell and trust that the truth will set us free. Just know this. As Jonah learned the hard way, whatever choice we make, the truth has a way of catching up with us. Each year during Black History Month, we do our best to tell the stories that are too often ignored or forgotten or who have never been told at all, especially by people who look like me. And while most of those times we tell stories about all the broad different history that happened across our country and in our nation and maybe even in our world regarding black history, celebrating black persons throughout this month, what we thought we'd do this year is focus a little more Close, a little closer to home, that we might stay here in Rochester and celebrate some of the black history, some of the black persons of Rochester. Certainly, we're not going to tell every story. We could stay here for every single sermon and still only scratch the surface. There's no way we can tell it all, but we will do our best to tell some. And I also want to acknowledge up front that my siblings of color out there are infinitely more qualified to tell these stories than I am. You have experienced this in ways that I never will and never have. And to be clear, I am not attempting to subvert your stories. But I also know this, that the onus of educating America, the onus of educating each other on this should not be left to our siblings of color alone. That people who look like me, whether we like to admit it or not, are a part of these stories. We've always been a part of these stories, just not in ways that we ought to be proud of. And while we can pretend like they're not there, like we weren't a part of these stories, until we own them, until we begin to lament and repent of our part in them, we cannot hope for a better world, which as it turns out is something all of us want. And so we will do our best to share these stories, to tell stories of Rochester history in these next four weeks. I will preach the first two weeks, and my colleague, the Reverend Jackie Nelson, will preach the, second to the last two weeks. And while it might be tempting to, like Jonah, run the other way, we encourage you to stick with us so that maybe, just maybe, the truth will set us all free. We are indebted to the librarians at the Rochester Public Library for their help and research. 
to conversations with black Rochesterians, to the book Strike the Hammer by Laura Warren Hill and the book Your Children Are Very Greatly in Danger by Justin Murphy, all of which helped inform these sermons for this month, all of which helped us hear the cries before us to help us lift up the cries before us. Now, let's be honest. One of the things that's hard about sticking close to home is that it is necessarily close to home. That is, whereas before, when we talk about these stories, we can hold them at arm's length or dismiss them as Southern ignorance. But these stories are in neighborhoods we know. They happen on streets we've driven down. And they evolve companies from which some of us drew a paycheck. The very paychecks that in many ways helped build this very church. So it would be easy to get a little defensive, to hold our hand out and to stand back, to say, we already know the black history that we want to tell about Rochester. It's one that we're really proud of. We're proud to be the city of Austin Stewart. We're proud to be the city of Frederick Douglass. We're proud to have been the stomping grounds from time to time of Harriet Tubman. We'd rather stick with those stories, but friends, only the truth will set us free. And the truth is, we have struggled as a city from our very inception. Remember, we are named after an enslaver. Colonel Nathaniel Rochester earned his money in Maryland before coming and settling on that little place in that Genesee Valley along the Genesee River. And he had his enslaved persons all the way up until he was forced to get rid of them on July 4th. 1827, when manumission became law in New York. And the truth is, he wasn't alone. That is, we can tell this story about a Rochester mystique, but we know in our hearts that it's a lie. That from the very beginning, our black and brown siblings, those who are among us, can often tell us, experience things that I never had to because of the color of my skin. And it doesn't take more than a cursory read of the autobiography of Austin Stewart, the first black business owner in, Ro owner in Rochester, or, Fred or Frederick Douglass, to recognize that they face things that their white counterparts never even dreamed of facing. So we could get defensive. Or maybe we could allow ourselves to become informed. So that maybe those erroneous notions of white supremacy that have too often built the structures on which we still rely today might finally be destroyed in our generation. Maybe as a people of faith, we can stop that bleeding from the city to the suburbs. Maybe as a people of faith, we can turn and face toward the city instead of away from it so that maybe by hearing the cries in front of us, we might allow others to sleep more easily. Of course, talking about black history in Rochester, particularly in the 20th century, it is hard to get very far without at least acknowledging that three-day uprising that happened on July, starting on July 24th, 1964. Maybe some of you remember. It was a hot evening that after three days left four dead 
350 injured, 900 arrested, over a million dollars in property damage, and the National Guard patrolling the streets. It was quickly dubbed by the press a race riot and dismissed by the national press as simply a carryover from some of the uneasiness downstate in the days prior to it. But to name that, to dismiss it in that way, ignores the truth of all of the conditions that led up to that moment of uprising, that moment in our history. Consider what happened to Miss Jessie James when she arrived in Rochester, New York, and discovered that mystique was a lie. As she said in an interview in 1978, she was able to get a job within two days. Menial jobs were plentiful. She became a maid at Rochester General Hospital. Only it wasn't enough to pay the bills, and so she started looking for other work and soon discovered that any other kind of job was closed to her. She inquired at, at being a nurse and joining the nursing school there at Rochester General, and she was told in no uncertain terms that it wasn't for her. And because there was virtually no black leadership at the time in any institution in Rochester, there was no one to advocate for her, at least no one who would advocate for her. She spent two years in a trade school learning to become a call center operator, only to graduate for her with her certificate and be told that there were no jobs available. No jobs available for her. The same thing was true in housing. She and her new husband found a house that they loved and they wanted to go and put an offer on it there, but because it was, uh, it was north of Genesee Street, on the other side of Genesee Street, she wasn't allowed to make an offer because it wasn't in the third or the seventh ward where almost all of the black migrants were forced to live. To be clear, Rochester could have easily sustained within our current infrastructure, when the, within the infrastructure of the time, the influx of migrants from all over the country. Had they been allowed to live where they wanted to live and work jobs for which they were qualified, but instead, because of redlining and restrictive covenants, and racist politicians, often in cohorts with dubious realtors and unscrupulous landlords, they were instead forced into government-created ghettos. When Dr. Walter Cooper, one of the only research, black research chemists at Kodak, prior to the fight uprise, the fight proxy battle in 1967, came to Rochester. I had the privilege of meeting him this week. When he came to Rochester, he applied for 69 apartments and was turned down for every single one. 69 apartments turned down for every single one, and when he began to speak out against it, that it was when the Democrat and Chronicle hired their first black reporter, Earl Caldwell, who then took an assignment to go out and try the same thing. He, too, was turned down for every single apartment, only to be followed by his white counterpart, who was freely offered a place to live. Constance Mitchell, who was eventually a third, ward, the, a third ward supervisor, at the time the highest elected position in the nation for a black woman. She said she knew there was a problem when across the street from her, she saw 20 mailboxes go up in front 
of a single-family house. See, these landlords would come together after realtors scared white neighbors away, and they would cut and subdivide all of these big houses in the third and the seventh wards, and they would create one room barely big enough for a small refrigerator, a two-burner stove, and maybe a mattress or two, and then rent it out to entire extended families, calling them efficiencies for twice the price they could have paid somewhere else in the city, but which they were not allowed to go. Prior to 1950, there was not a single neighborhood in Rochester that was predominantly black. That took work. It took racist policy and unscrupulous realtors and slumlords who took advantage of people who had no other place to go to funnel people into horrid conditions. Bedbugs and rat infestations were a way of life. And while they struggled to find their streets cleaned or plowed or schools or groceries or virtually any other service, the police and their dogs were regular presence in their lots. They were constantly in fear of the dogs of the police, so much so that over the years, decade by decade, by 1962, you had Rufus Farewell, who was locking up at his service station. And the police came around to ask him what he was doing there, despite the fact that he had keys, he had his suit on. They told him, what are you doing there? And he said, I'm locking up, at which point they beat him into a wheelchair. Six months later, in 1963, A.C. White was simply moving his car from one side of the street to another during a block party when the police came after him. And again, he ended up 21 days in ICU at Strong. And it just kept happening and kept happening. All of those events that their white neighbors somewhere off in the suburb would never worry about police presence being there. They had to fear and to run for the fear of their life. And so it came that in that hot July day, when they were hosting a fundraising event for a playground, and they got word that a police dog had bitten a little girl. True or not, the community had had enough, and so they rose up. The truth is, I'm not sure I would have lasted any longer. I'm not sure I would have lasted as long. The truth is, friends, we have a choice, the same choice that Jonah faced. We can look at the city, and the injustices that are before us and choose to run the other way, to get into our boat and sail headfirst into the storm, trying our best to sleep, pretending like we can't hear the cries before us, or we can unshackle ourselves from those neat narratives we love to tell ourselves and trust that the truth will set us free. Just remember this. Whatever choice we make, just like Jonah learned, the truth has a way of catching up with us.
the truth just might swallow us whole. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Asbury First Weekly Sermon. If you enjoyed this message, please visit asburyfirst.org and learn more about our mission to love God and neighbor, live fully, serve all, repeat.